0: Thank you for supporting the Searcy Podcast Network by listening, sharing, and giving feedback to our shows. As you may know, the Searcy Institute is in the midst of our year-end fundraising campaign. Your support last year enabled us to add several key members to the Searcy team. With your continued help, we are excited about what the future holds. In particular, donor support helps us provide free resources like these podcasts and the former journal. Please visit searcyinstitute.org backslash donate to see more about all you make possible and to support us this year. Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc. I'm joined again by Matthew Bianco and Andrea Lipinski. Andrea, Matt, how are you doing today?
1: Great. I'm really glad to be here.
2: I'm I'm like stuffed full of answers and I just can't wait to get some out of them out for the, all
0: these questions
1: that are coming. That's really yes. great compared to this morning when he wasn't awake yet and didn't want to answer any hard questions. That's right.
0: Yes. Save them uh, up. So this is our first Q&A. Uh, Akibiati's one and technically two. Um, but being our first Q&A, we only got a handful of questions, so we will we will do our best on those and then have a little wrap-up discussion and get everybody ready for for the next book. or or the next series of plays, I should say, which is Sophocles 1. Well, these come primarily from our fan Joshua Butcher. So thanks, Joshua, for being on the ball with questions this time around. Long time listener, first time asker. That's right. That's right. Long time listener from way back on the first episode. All right. Does Socrates love Alcibiades more than other students who followed him and were more receptive to his teaching? Hmm. If so, why? And then he says, For my part, I wonder how much of Socrates' love for Alcibiades is tied up with his love for Athens. Because of Alcibiades' potential, and maybe more so because of Alcibiades was destined to have influence over the city, Socrates' attempts to guide Alcibiades toward the philosophical life are not only good for Alcibiades' own soul, but for the collective soul of Athens as a city. So first, do we think he he loves Alcibiades more than others? other students uh, who followed him maybe were more receptive
1: mm. well i have to good question uh, yeah i think it's an excellent question but i want to uh, admit that i have not read all of the dialogues to know how, how he relates to many 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 people um so i will continue to ponder but i feel limited in my answer
0: um i think i think he's there's Alcibiades seems to be one of at least a few that he looked that he seems to pursue a little, a little harder, right? There's, um, Oh, shoot. Now I can't think, uh, he seems to, I don't know, maybe not in the same way, but, but also kind of make it an, more of an effort to kind of get into, into Glaucon's, um, head a little bit. I think too, Matt, is it, am I remembering, remembering correctly? Not get into his head, but like, um, press him on things, but it does seem like I could be, is one that he, he makes more of an effort, um, at least to me, it mm-hmm. seems like other times the, the dialogues we get are people coming more to him um, for whatever oh, reason.
1: Right. This one, he clearly pursues Alcibiades, and near the beginning, Alcibiades asks him, "What? What do you hope to achieve by bothering me?" <laughs> kind of like that one um, as a question, and in Socrates' long answer, one of his lines in there, he says, "You want your reputation and your influence to saturate all mankind, so to speak." And so that's where I like his question, to say, mm-hmm. "Hmm, is this really about the person, or is this about the role this person's going to play in the larger society?"
0: Right. Hmm. Okay. I
2: don't. I don't know. I mean, the, the first part of the question requires like a comparison, mm-hmm. a mental comparison of how Socrates interacts with Alcibiades versus how Socrates interacts with other right. of his disciples. And my guess, I mean, I think I would have to say something like Socrates doesn't play favorites. He doesn't have favorites. Mm-hmm. But his love for each person is particular enough. Like it accounts for their particularness
1: mm-hmm.
2: that yeah. it's demonstrated in different ways. So there's like, there's one dialogue where he's like kind of playing with the guy's hair. young man sitting next to him, you know, and he's just playing with his hair while he's talking to the group Um, that, you know, there's a, there's a tenderness there. Like, is about to die. This is on his deathbed. He's about to drink the Mm hemlock. And there's this tenderness where these guys have gathered. There's a group of men that have gathered around him that are, you know, weeping already because their leader's about to die. And he's like tenderly kind of, you know, caring for this young man that's sitting there. And, uh, um, I, you know, so I think there's stuff like that that you can see in the dialogues. But I think, I, okay, for the second part of the question, sure. I think Socrates is being attentive to and pursuing Alcibiades. Because he's going into politics, because he's destined to, or you know, he's driven toward being driven toward politics, but but not not to make sure Alcibiades plays the right role in that or does the right thing in that role, but actually probably to prevent it from happening. No. Huh. You know what I mean? Like, so I think I don't I the way I the way you read Joshua Joshua's question, the way I interpreted it as I was hearing yeah. it, was Socrates is evaluating his followers and he's evaluating Kibiades higher than others mm-hmm. as needing more attention because he's going to be a prominent figure politically. But I think he needs more attention because he needs to be prevented from taking on that political role. I think mm-hmm. that's what Socrates would probably be doing. I mean, think about it. The most like polit like on the on the surface of it, it looks like Alcibiades is the most important person because he's the most likely to be politically influential and have a huge effect on the Athenians, right? But who actually has the greatest effect on the Athenians and all of Western civilization after that? Not the political guy,
1: mm-hmm.
2: the artist, the playmaker, mm-hmm. right? Plato was a, Plato was a dramatist. And a play a playwriter, right? And then he goes on and he writes these kind of pseudo plays that, you know, di- we call them dialogues, but he ends up being the most influential. Um, so, I don't, I don't know. Like, we, you know, we we Americans, I think, you, va- you know, value political activity hmm. much higher. And I think the Athenians did, too. In that sense, we're very much like them. But I don't think Socrates did.
0: It, that's an interesting point because you know we we sometimes forget that Plato rarely plays a role in any of the actual dialogues. Like he's he's very rarely in the dialogue himself. Um, right. I, I think there's even like one or two where famously, like like he says like he's not there. Like it's it's said that he's not even there. Uh, I'm trying to remember which one I'm thinking, T- Timaeus maybe, where he's like. They list who's there and Plato's not Plato's not one of them <laughs> or something like that like who's in the or room Fado. oh yeah 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 um so well he, that happens a lot
2: but in Phaedo it specifically says that he wasn't there because he was ill
0: okay, like named okay. him but
2: then says he wasn't present because right. he was ill
0: um so in that sense he got that one secondhand or, whatever, or or you know whatever that that heard that one secondhand maybe but yeah he's famously not in it but like um, you said he then he's the one who who uh, we have to assume was at least the most devoted follower, right? That, that not only wrote the things down, but he himself has to go into exile at some point to, 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 to avoid the same fate. Um, and yeah, so you, we don't get very many pictures then of what their relationship actually was from the dialogues because we don't see them, the two of them actually interacting that often, um, Though you would assume that he had his own had his own interactions with the teacher um, that he doesn't write down or that he maybe attributes to someone else or whatever, um, hmm, that's an interesting question. I mean, that's that's an interesting perspective that that Socrates' real goal is to keep people from getting drawn into these things that he thinks are less important, not setting them up to be the important leader. Hmm.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's probably much easier to make somebody a philosopher first than a king, than it is to make a king a philosopher.
0: Yeah. Well, what you see, yeah, which maybe what, what you see with um a few generations down the line, right? Where where Aristotle's hired to to teach um, Alexander, who's already who's already kind of in line, right, to become the king. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And. Well, that kind of flows into his second question a little bit. He says, Socrates seems far more attracted to ambitious individuals uh, like Alcibiades and those who are complacent." Is this simply a bias in Socrates' character, or does it say something about the difference between sp- sparking a soul out of complacency and redirecting a soul that is driven towards some end?
2: Huh. I wonder why he says. I wonder why he says that Socrates seems
0: more attracted to the ambitious. My, i mean again i like like andrea i've only read some of the dialogues um but maybe it's because the dialogues we get uh, there's usually s- interaction with at least one person who's trying to impress somebody if it's not soccer it's somebody else right i mean even my first one um that i read with within the apprenticeship was the mino right and mino comes and like Tries to hide the fact that he has written down the speech that he wants to tell Socrates. Like he wants to come sell Socrates something he just heard, right? And so he's trying to come and be impressive. And so there's that, maybe that level of ambition at least. Brandon,
2: you're getting them mixed up. That's Phaedrus.
0: What? Oh, man. In Phaedrus. Phaedrus? No, Mm. that was my second one. Yeah, Phaedrus. He hides the speech. That's one of the, they're by the river. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. See? This is what happens. You don't go back and read them, read them. Yeah. But there's there, there's that level of ambition, right? And and to something that these are all men who are of a cl- of a certain class, right? Of of citizen that are that even have the door open to them to to move toward political careers or military careers or whatever it might be that would be
1: I feel auspicious. Like, these are people who had the leisure leisure to have these conversations, um, and so then within that. Um, Is it more so I'm thinking in my, you know, if I look at my different classes that I've led, there's typically more um, outspoken students and quieter students, or even in the apprenticeship or in any kind of group discussions, right? You have your talkers and your quiet ones. Um, And so are these dialogues that are captured with more of the outspoken talkative students? I don't know, would you think Socrates would have all outspoken students?
2: Apparently not because Plato never speaks. But (laughs) (laughs) um, the uh, what's interesting is Socrates does. Socrates tells us what he's attracted to. Okay. He says in in Alcibiades one. He says in one thirty one D or C and D. He says. Um. Or as D, I guess. But someone who loves your soul will not leave you as long as you're making progress. Mm. And then later in D, he says, Elkipiade says, I'm glad you are, Socrates, and I hope you never leave me. And then Socrates says, then you must try to be as attractive as possible. Which I understand to mean continue to try making progress, right? I thought I meant fix your hair. You make yourself... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's right. You have know, to put the makeup on in the right spot. Yeah, yeah. Um, But making progress is what makes you attractive. So mm-hmm. be attra- as attractive as possible by continuing to make progress. So Socrates doesn't seem to be, or Socrates doesn't see himself as someone who's attractive, to, attracted to, you know, mm-hmm. outgoing or outspoken or gregarious or ambitious people, but rather attracted to people who are interested in. Pursuing truth mm. and improving themselves and being lovers of wisdom. The, there's a very interesting dialogue that we should probably read someday. Mm. <laughs>
1: uh,
2: and it's super short. It's like four and a half pages, four pages long, four and a half pages long. Um, and it's called Clitophon, Clitophon. And it's not even a dialogue. Like it, the opening, lo- the opening passage is like four lines long, and it's Socrates asking Cladophon a question, and then the remaining four pages is Cladophon basically blasting Socrates hmm. for not teaching him properly. Hmm. Um, like basically, say, I mean, basically, it's an accusation about. It's an accusation against Socrates of Socrates divorcing. Right thinking from right acting. Really? And saying, you only taught us how to think, you never Mm. taught us how to act. Mm. And that's why I started following Thrasymachus, because Thrasymachus tells us how to act. Mm. And it's a four-page long blasting of Socrates. Mm. And at the end, there is no response. Mm. Socrates says nothing. He takes it. Plato lets Cladophon have the final say, the last word. Hmm. But the um, commentaries on the te- on the dialogue are very interesting because the uh, the basic kind of pro Socrates response is Socrates can't respond because Cladophon won't listen, and
1: the only what response
2: says. Socrates yeah, no matter what Socrates says, it will Cladophon yeah. will not hear him what yeah. he says. Um, And so there's no response to make that you just, you can't talk to somebody like that. You can't, you just can't. And so he doesn't. Now, if you accept that interpretation, you know, that commentary, then there again, here's a guy who's active, who's ambitious, who Mm -hmm. wants to be taught, who's begging Socrates to teach him this stuff, but Socrates won't even talk to him because Mm -hmm. he won't listen because he's hmm. not making progress, and he's not making himself as attractive as possible.
1: Hmm. Um, I wonder what he's learning from from Rysimachus, What he thinks he's learning that Socrates isn't <laughs> able to see the ability to learn from yeah. him. Hmm.
2: I don't know. I mean, yeah. The thing I could go by here is what Socrates says in the Alcibiades. Yeah, it's that what he's attracted to is somebody who. Is trying to improve himself.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Somebody who's
0: trying to uh, what's the phrase he uses? Um, Cultivate himself. Okay. So do you think in this case, then, if that's the case in Alcibiades, Mm -hmm. he's attracted to the fact that even though he thinks Alcibiades is going about it the wrong way and toward the wrong ends, that Alcibiades has been trying to make himself better. Right. So it's not so much that he's just ambitious. But that he wants to be—he has at least this goal of excellence, right? This goal of being the best, right? Like being the most well-spoken. So he's taken the most seriously. He mm-hmm. leads Athens. He leads the world. Like he wants to be a leader. He wants there's this goal of of excellence or arete, and so that's what's appealing. And he just wants to try and redirect that toward the true excellence.
1: I mean, he says it in line one hundred five e. I hope to exert great influence over you by showing you that I'm worth the world to you, and that nobody is capable of providing you with the influence you crave. And he goes on. So, I mean, I think that's that's what he's stating.
0: Because the the question that 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 was posed after he, but it made the. Assumption that he's attracted to ambitious individuals, but the question that was posed is Is this simply a bias in Socrates' character, or does it say something about the difference between sparking a soul out of complacency and redirecting a soul that is driven towards some end? So, so I don't think there's me. a.
1: Well, is she getting the spark or directing the spark?
0: Yeah, because it, it, it would seem like in this case, it's not that Alcibiades is a complacent person, right, in general. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a He's a driven person to some extent. Mm-hmm. And and Socrates is trying to redirect. Mm-hmm. So but Matt, you got excited yes. about that question. So mm-hmm. let me hear it. Yes,
2: because that's the answer. Like that, okay, putting it that way, I don't maybe he said you said that the first time and I didn't hear it. Um, but that's exactly right. The Socrates look how do, how does Plato define education? Hmm. Do you guys remember?
1: I'm supposed to remember. Come on,
2: classical educators. Okay. Tell me one of the definitions for education. <laughs> oh,
1: there's a great guy. <laughs> to teach to... people
2: to love the lovely. To love
1: that the one. lovely. Mm-hmm.
2: That's yeah. Plato's definition of education, right? Or the purpose Thank of you. education: to love the lovely and to despise the shameful.
0: Okay.
2: What? Okay, so the the what. What Joshua is kind of putting side by side, the complacency versus ambition, is is eros. Eros is the driving thing. Eros, which is Mm -hmm. the Greek word for love, right? Mm -hmm. Or a Greek word for love. So eros is the driver, right? I have eros for a woman. I have eros for money. I have eros for power. I have eros for influence. I have eros for whatever, and that's what drives me. And for Socrates, I bet, for if Socrates, Plato's, that understanding of education is what's right, it's taking that eros, education is loving the lovely, it's taking the existing eros and pointing it towards the actually lovely. Mm. Mm. Right? So instead of loving, you know sex or money or power or fame or fortune or whatever what they're trying to do is redirect that love towards wisdom towards virtue towards truth towards goodness towards beauty
0: mm-hmm.
2: that's probably easier to do mm-hmm. from their perspective than to inculcate or to to light eros Mm-hmm. itself in someone who doesn't have it. Yeah, which is the, why you want to get why you want to you know, which why Charlotte Mason wants us wants us to do Charlotte Masony things with our children when they're young before that that wonder has been quenched is to is to grow the wonder and and then aim it toward the right things and train it. Um that's easier to do than mm-hmm. than, you know, getting somebody who hates school
0: and Hates yeah, learning yeah. and has no sense of wonder or does you know. Well, then re, relighting a flame that was doused basically was, was pretty tough, right? Like, you know,
1: That's exactly where I went, Brandon, yeah. thinking about keeping the fire going in the home, right? And all that was done to keep that Kindle, to mm-hmm. relight it the next day and the next day. Um, you didn't want it to go out overnight.
0: Yeah. And in the, and in the case of education, if it gets crushed, it's, it's not even to, it went out. It's like it was poured water on it right so now you've got this wet thing that's impossible to relight almost
1: Mm
0: -hmm. uh yeah because i think the only when they talk about something being sparked it's often more of an insight along that path of understanding right of of truth not so much that you had somebody who didn't want to learn at all and you got them to start wanting to learn um so that makes that makes sense Mm -hmm. So he
2: seems to I, encounter. I bet that's a an excellent question to read through the dialogues, asking mm-hmm. like, what is yeah, he doing here? Yeah, yeah. What is what is this person's real desire, and what is Socrates trying to redirect it toward? Or does this person have no desire, and how is Socrates going about
1: kindling it,
2: lighting it, kindling it? And, and and if it's the first one, right? <laughs> what is he trying to redirect it toward, and how is he do? How is he trying to redirect it? versus like what tools is he using to elevate somebody's desires from money to right virtue. Yeah.
0: And if it's the other, what what's he doing? Right. If if, if you encounter times when he is trying to get them to go from complacency to something, how is he is he approaching yeah. that differently? Um and then maybe even as you go through if you're finding both, uh I don't know, uh how often are you finding both? Like how much of his time does he spend trying to Get people who just don't want to learn to learn to be to care, or versus how much time he's spending fanning whatever flames exist there and putting them in the right direction. Those are those would be several good things to kind of read through the dialogues, just kind of on that on that line of thought. Well, that's mm-hmm. good. That's a good question. All right. Well, uh, next question. Socrates appears to hold up the Persians as an ideal, and I was particularly struck by the brief summary of Persian royal education he gives in one twenty one d through one twenty two a. If Tony wants to look that up real quick. we can read that. Mm-hmm. Um, the four virtues figure prominently: wisdom, justice, temperance, and courage. From the pillar, form the pillars of education. Wisdom instructs in piety and rule, justice in truth-telling, temperance in mastering all pleasures, or ruling oneself, and courage in being fearless and undaunted. What sort of course of study might each of these virtues entail? was hmm. so, he
2: asking, like, what what would you study to cultivate that virtue?
0: Mm-hmm. I think so. What sort or, of what, or course is of he study?
2: specifically, what did the Persian study?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Because uh,
2: yeah. because Herodotus actually tells us
0: tells us what they studied what what the Persian course of study was for these four things. Yeah. Nice, nice. Then I guess we're going to have to get around to Herodotus at some point on this show. Sounds <laughs> like to me. Oh. <laughs> or at least in parts. If we're talking about what, or maybe, maybe, but maybe the question is what sort of course of study might each of these versions entail, either for the Greeks or for us, or or has historically entailed in, within classical education, or within education. Well, the answer is in the Republic.
2: <laughs> and that's where Socrates gives his course of study for the Greek study.
0: <laughs> but this seems like one of those questions where you'd have to like see how this has manifested itself in various forms, right like you have Socrates in the Republic you have I'm sure the Roman ha- have their had their own course of study all the way through the different medievals and uh, uh, thinkers uh, on our other it part, might be
2: t- fun though. I'm sorry, Brandon, go ahead.
0: Well, I just interviewed yesterday, uh, this week, it'll be out soon, a uh, uh, professor at at, at Hillsdale, um, Eric Ellis, and he was talking about um, this kind of these, how some of these things get blended from the Greeks and Romans in in the Christian tradition uh, during mm-hmm. the medieval period. But um, how many of these people that we think of for other things, like Boethius in particular, like the Constellation of Philosophy, but he was also working on a course of study, um, or his life was ended, that was then picked up by one of his one of his students and completed. Um, that is exactly this kind of thing, right? This, the course of a curriculum, if you will, or even um, we talked about yesterday, it would even be technically more like a textbook, though not how we think of a textbook now. So it's interesting. Yeah.
2: Well, and it, it might be interesting. It might be interesting. Because we, cause Socrates doesn't tell us the answer and in this dialogue, and we don't have access to Herodotus and Plato's Republic currently. So <laughs> it might be interesting if each of us just picked one of the virtues and said, here's, a, here's what I think a course of study is for this particular virtue, or pick a couple of them or whatever. Or you can do all four if you want. Like, I, don't, I mean, I just think that would be a fun way to answer it. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Well, he lays. You know, he talks about how it's laid out in here: that wisdom instructs in piety and rule, justice in truth telling, temperance in mastering all pleasures, and courage in being fearless and undaunted.
1: Yeah, but I need to write them down yeah, see, and see that, and then I can speak to it. You'd have to say it again for me.
2: Yeah. <laughs> see, I think the courage—the courage, the courage one—is interesting because um, I don't. I don't mean I don't know if I necessarily think of myself as a very courageous person, but. But but I I have memories, you know, of of having to go outside and play during the day, during the summer, in the afternoons, whatever, on the weekends. And that meant all kinds of stuff where I was running around the community, around town, by myself or with my friends, no adults. And, I mean, there were adults, you know, whatever, but not, like, watching over us. And... You know, and that meant doing stupid stuff like running across the interstate mm-hmm. that was in our backyard, you know, behind mm-hmm. our backyard without, yeah. without adults or mm-hmm. going swin- swimming in random creeks and swimming holes that we discovered while we were running around in the woods or or playing pickup, you know, baseball or football games and, um, and then having to face the wrath of your friends when – you know, somebody called somebody out and then he was actually safe, but he was on the other team, but you say you admitted he was safe or whatever, you know, like all the different things that we had to do, and then the right, and the um, the uh the you know, having to live with the peacemaking ramifications or not, you know, failure, all of that stuff that we had to do, and we just had to do it on our own, and then the repercussions, we felt them, like we had to deal with it, right? Uh there was no adult to kind of save us. And But then, you know, when I got a little bit older and video games were more commonplace and then me and my cousins or my cousins and I would spend more of our time in the house playing video games, video games, there's no, like, I can go rushing into the enemy Mm -hmm. and get my, you know, head blown off by some Mm -hmm. enemy soldier in some war game and there's no, there's no... I don't I don't lose anything. There's no pain on my part, you know. I mean I mean I maybe I have to restart the level or something, right? But there's no there's no courage that's required for me to go do that. So I don't know. There's I mean, even just like a course of study for kids might be just make them go play on their own and live with the ramifications of their choices, but outside in a real world where they can get hurt. Emotion their feelings can get hurt, their body can get hurt, whatever, you know. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we talked about a lot that the, you know, historically, some of the earliest, the earliest things for temperance was your mastering pleasures was was kind of the gymnastics to some extent, right? Like you know, just having to play an exercise, and uh, maybe in our world, there's some of that that still lingers in in sport, uh, sports of some kind, where like it's not fun to do the practice and the training and the. And the putting off of the enjoyment of the of the activity, but then otherwise the the pleasure of playing baseball or whatever isn't isn't there if you if you don't put in the practice and the work and the training. Um, mm. it, it is interesting to think of these things in you know in 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 light of uh, Christianity versus what uh, the, we have here in 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 Plato. Um, but for us, I think piety has to start probably within our churches uh and homes, um, when it and teaching right behavior in those in those in those places, right? Um and I think maybe we've gotten away from that even in a lot of our churches in in America, that we it's it's a little bit too much playtime for kids. Um, we don't expect much of them there for a long time. Rather than asking them to to have uh, respect for what's going on and or teaching them to do that and including them in that, we tend to separate them out a lot more often in our culture than I think has been historically the case. Um, and so, I think the more we can let make them see that that time is the different time. It's a set aside time in the week. It's not. It's not like the rest of their week. Um, that's probably the earliest place to start instructing them in piety um, and and wisdom. So,
1: And so I hadn't seen the side-by-sideness of the development of justice through truth-telling, right, that he asks about. And yet when I think about my childhood, um, I very much learned that you tell enough of the truth to keep the family happy. So on family, you know, and there's the saying that you learned everything you need to know on family vacation. So we're on family vacation and my, all the girls, my aunt, my mom, my cousins, all the females, but the grandma go shopping because we're in Pennsylvania and it's tax-free on clothing there. So we have to go shopping, right? For clothes. And um, while we're out, we're driving grandma's minivan and my aunt is the one driving it and she, it's snowing. So she uses the windshield wipers and they scrape the window We don't know why. Like, we use the windshield wipers all the time. But this time, they cut the glass windshield. And my aunt tells all of us, don't tell grandma what's happened to her windows until her medicine arrives. So she left town without her medication. It's coming in a few days in the mail. Once she gets her medicine in her, then we'll tell her this truth. Right? Um, And so I learned, you tell enough of the truth. And it's okay to, to keep family peace. And so that was, I was in junior high, high school. Sometime after having children, something happened and we didn't tell grandma again. I'm an adult now, right? And um, my grandmother pulls me aside and says, why didn't you just tell me? And I could just see the hurt in her eyes, right? That I didn't tell mm. her the truth. Um, and I, I just apologized and I owned it. At that point, there's no point in me telling her, well, none of us tell you the truth. And we haven't told you the whole truth for a really long time because that's what keeps everybody happy here, right? Like, that's not going to help. Um, so I just, I owned it. Mm. I apologized and I didn't lie to her again. And I told her the whole truth right when it happened, whenever it was, Um and it was uncomfortable like i would like even right now i get warm just telling you the story like it was so uncomfortable because it wasn't what i was raised in mm-hmm. um yet what mm. came the fruit of that relationship of what i had with her because of that um i wouldn't trade but i didn't know what i didn't have until i had it so
2: it's interesting though the you still didn't tell her the whole truth.
1: What do you mean? Oh, right. That the, we've all done this? Yeah, I guess you're right. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that there's like... like
1: well, that's like out somebody family else. Where
2: trained you to draw the line yeah. was way short. Yeah. But where you end up discovering to actually draw the line is probably more appropriate. Right? Like, it doesn't... It It's not... I, I don't know. Like, I, I agree that this... The truth that you withheld in the end was—I think that seems appropriate to me to withhold. Like it's not—it's not your place to to say that. It's not. Mm -hmm. It doesn't help. It doesn't. I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't help in the fullest sense. Not. Not like your aunt's version of help seemed a little self-serving. In this case, I mean help in a fuller sense, right? Like it's not even—it's not good for grandma or anybody to to hear that other, you know, version of the truth or that other aspect of the truth. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's fascinating. Truth is always telling. The truth has always been something that's interesting to me. Like, like, you know, from a Christian perspective, it seems like lying is always wrong. And withholding information is a kind of lying. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, even biblically speaking, that doesn't seem to hold true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: So it's interesting
2: what I mean to to know what Socrates means here by saying to be truthful his whole life. Okay. Wow. What? 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 What do you mean? What does that mean? I don't know. Were you truthful in that moment? I think so. But you know, I came clean I with about everything between
1: our relationship. I didn't tell her about other people's relationships with her.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And maybe that's the, uh, maybe that's the, 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 the line. That's where the line mm-hmm. is.
1: I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's what I did in that moment. I wasn't raised in a yeah. Christian home at all. Um, and so figuring out um truth,
0: how to survive
2: in this world
0: <laughs> on every set of parents has to decide what they're going to do about the Santa Claus question. So there's air and there's every opinion under the sun, about how and when you deal with that, right? Like, but like, is it untruthful, right? To tell to not or whatever, is it right? Untruthful to right. just let them believe something and mm-hmm. go on believing it and not correct them. Or is it only untruthful? Like when they flat out ask you, is there really a guy coming down the chimney putting stuff in my stocking right you know
2: and, and so, are we responsible to say to to preface every single imagine, imaginational yeah. <laughs> right. imaginary thing with mm-hmm. this is not true and we, and we and when we say that we mean what like right, it's yeah. not historically yeah. accurate it's not ma- materialistically accurate what does that mean you know what i mean you
0: know right yeah yeah, um, well, and I think if you even watch Socrates' own words, right, in this and other dialogues, he's, I don't know that he, like, I, I don't know that I could find a place where I could come out and accuse him of outright lying to anybody, but he's obfuscating, right, like when he says, he's so-and-so's son, and he's talking about himself, right, like, <laughs> he's just not wanting to tell Alcibiades he means himself, but and there's other times where he's setting <laughs> you, setting them up. That's from Hippias,
2: right? Brandon. You keep no, conflating we, all your dialogue. No, he tells Hippias that he's the son of Sophroniscus.
0: He says he's someone else's son in this one. Aaron Alcibiades, two, maybe.
1: I thought he named his actual parents.
2: He names his actual parents, but he's talking about himself in that one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So I'm saying he. But in he, Hippias, he's talking about himself, but he doesn't want to admit yeah. that he's talking about himself. So when the guy asks him what, who he's talking about, he says, oh, I'm talking about the son of Sophroniscus.
0: It's too much in my head, too many things in my head. <laughs> um, But there's other, other times too, right. Where he's just kind of letting them run out their own argument, even though he thinks they're, he knows they're going to be wrong at the end. So he's not telling them cause he's letting them get there. Right. Um, so he's withholding the truth from them to some extent, but he's not lying to them. He's letting them see the truth. Right. And so that it becomes even within his own dialogues, like to be, to be truthful your whole life, right. Is, um, not so black and white, I guess, or not. So what that means is not so clean. So
2: I have this, uh, I, I don't know. It's like a magnet, a magnetic, a magnetism about me that these kinds of conversations always come up on podcasts that I'm on.
1: So <laughs> on the plays, the
2: thing with Tim and Nora in both of the last two plays that I've done, which is um, "All's Well That Ends Well," we just finished, and then uh, "Taming of the Shrew" which was like a year and a half ago, year ago, whatever. Uh, the um, in both of those the conversation or the question of lying comes up.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
2: to what extent is, you know, the one character lying to the other and is it just and or mm-hmm. is it just, you know, uh, uh ends justifies the means and right. you know all that stuff. And I always find myself stuck in this place where I'm defending the the liar <laughs> as as just and defending the liar as not being just on the grounds of the ends justifies the means, but that there's a legitimate Mm. way to lie as it were it, but in which the lie is really truth from a mm-hmm. higher plane than the materialistic realm i guess i don't know i i mean well, I, I almost kind of want to go back and listen to what i said on those two those two shows to see how i how i described it but
0: yeah i've listened to both those shows um and, and I think in some cases you're talking about like a deception that reveals the truth, right? Like it's they're, they're not, there's a, dis, um, y'all just did all well that ends well. Right. And so there's this deception that proves that she really is his wife and is owed the, all that a wife is owed, but she has to deceive him to see for him to see his own error. And so it's a deception that reveals truth, you know, similar to, uh, when the prophet goes to, to David. Right. And like, Tells him this story about someone who did something terrible. And he's like, Yeah, that's you. Right. You know, so that it was this, the story wasn't true. It was, a, it was a fake story about someone who did something they weren't supposed to do and should be punished to get David's ire up. But so the story wasn't true, but the truth, like it reveals the truth of what should be done or, or what should be, um, who should be contrived. So there's a,
2: there's a, an interesting passage in Proverbs verse four and five where it says, do not answer a fool according to his folly in verse four. And then in verse five, it says answer a fool according to his folly. So which one do you do? Because one says don't and the other one says do. But the first one, it says do not answer a fool according to his folly or you yourself will be like him. But the second one says answer a fool according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own eyes. Mm. So one of them, I don't know how to I don't know what the difference is <laughs> besides the do and the do not. But there's some some arguments are have been made that to answer a fool according to his folly is to is to kind of engage in like a presuppositionalism where okay I'm going to accept your premises for
1: mm-hmm. the sake
2: of this conversation and then push them to see where they take us.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then that reveals his foolishness, right? lest he become wise in his own eyes. Um, so it's interesting because that seems like a way of deceit in insofar as i'm gonna I'm gonna accept something that's not true, but you believe it, so I'm gonna accept it for the sake of the conversation and i'm gonna and I'm gonna operate in your categories in your mm-hmm. worldview, your mindset, your way of thinking, your presuppositions, and uh, trying to reveal the foolishness to you, that was, how did you say it, Brandon, that there's a, a deceit in order to undo deceit
0: or? To reveal truth, like the actual to actual truth. To reveal truth, yeah. Yeah, yeah a, a deception, a deception to, to reveal truth, right? So, and that's what you see in a lot of Shakespeare, I think, when someone is being tricked or when a, um, something's being done that way, it's often to reveal a deeper truth, Right.
1: Um, In a way, it is I've not thought of this. Is that a piece of Hamlet, feigning madness?
0: Yeah, mm. a piece of yeah, feigning madness to um, reveal truth. And then depending on how you, where you come down on the side of Mark Antony and Brutus, you know uh, Anthony's whole speech about about Brutus being an honorable man, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I think
2: is it possible to come down on more than one side
0: there? Uh, I mean, <laughs> other people. people who
2: read it differently than than I do, <laughs> way, uh,
0: yeah. Um, it comes back to how you take the word uh, tyrannus, which will tyrant. So, um, yeah. So I think you. I think I think Shakespeare plays with this all, plays with this a lot um, in comedies, and histories, and in and in the uh, tragedies. So, um. And someone who was would have been steeped in both the Christian tradition and this historical tradition of these t- other texts, and so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So clearly, the question doesn't doesn't easily get resolved or go away, but is continued to be wrestled with uh, throughout this this these great texts, these classical te- classic texts.
1: So, well, I, I find it interesting that it, you know we're ending here talking about lying, um, and that that's where Al ends, All right? Yeah. Um, his last line in Alcabiades one is, yes, that's right. I'll start to cultivate justice in myself right now. <laughs> hmm. Right. And so what's the path to that?
2: Hmm. Oh. Hmm. Yeah. What was that the last question?
0: Um, there's one more, but do you have something you want to say about that still? Or do you want to?
2: No, I, I have a question.
0: Oh, okay. Mm -hmm.
2: For us. Um, But we should do his question.
0: He says, Socrates' approach to Alcibiades really resonates. He does not allow Alcibiades to accept best among the rest as a standard, Mm -hmm. but neither does he make the highest Mm -hmm. aspirations seem too far off. Socrates appears to know just the right amount of pushing around versus offering a taste of glory to Alcibiades. The fact that Socrates spent more time following Alcibiades around observing him without pursuit seems very important to his discernment of Alcibiades' soul. How might this sort of deep observation take place in our own context? Familial, educational, ecclesiastical, vocational, etc.
1: How do we come to know our own soul?
0: Um, I think he's talking about deep observation of others in order to, to help them.
1: Help them know their souls.
0: hmm I think we should preface our answers to this question
2: with this statement. We are in no way condoning, authorizing, approving, or encouraging stalking. <laughs> Ever. Yeah. But, um, yeah. having said that, first you want to get these cameras that go, no, just kidding.
0: <laughs> if you're part of the paparazzi.
1: I think it, so in that regard, it. I think it goes back to attention, right that we have to cultivate the skill of attention within ourselves mm. before it can go anywhere else. Um, so uh, attention and memory are the two skills we need to learn and everything and anything. Um, and so how do we pay attention to a person um, to help reflect them rightly? Mm. You know it's interesting. I don't, but the, I'd like to know.
2: Oh, good, because I'm about to tell you. This is what's interesting to me.
1: Mm.
2: I think the people that are most likely to get pursued as mentors
1: mm.
2: are people who speak with a lot of wisdom or, or are perceived to speak with a lot of wisdom. Mm. So a lot of the guys that Socrates engages with, like Gorgias and Mino and, you know, whatever, the mm-hmm. these are all guys that are famous.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, they, people they flock to them, pay them money, yeah. right? Right.
2: But they, but they don't pay attention to the people they're talking to. They're just spouting off what they know and believe, right? Mm-hmm. But the people are attracted to that and they go follow them and they start paying them money. And, um, and the, the people that actually ought to be mentors are people that have cultivated that attention for the other, mm-hmm. right? Socrates apparently is so amazing for Alkibiades because he perceived Alcibiades, mm-hmm. and not because he can give great speeches, but right. because he sees the, the nature of Alcibiades' own nature, mm-hmm. which apparently he's able to do because he you know whatever followed him around and watched him and observed him Mm -hmm. and probably as if 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 as teachers we're really trying to cultivate wisdom and virtue Mm -hmm. and in order to do that we need to know our students Mm -hmm. that probably requires a lot of a lot more observation than what we think right we what we might think is that if we get up and give all the right talks and all the right lectures and all the right speeches and read all the right books and ask all the right questions about the books, that we're going to get wisdom and virtue. But apparently, perhaps, maybe, the way we're going to get cultivate wisdom and virtue is by actually observing the nature of the child we're teaching mm-hmm. and, and interacting with that. Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's where it's vital through conversations
2: that, and talks and whatever, right? I was gonna but say it's just, vital to yeah. spend
1: time with them in some manner outside of the classroom. And so it's in the lunchroom and in the hall and at their events, whether they're academic events or sporting events or um uh, fine art events, you know, what whatever they're involved in, or serving alongside them in the community by packing bags for something, you know. Um it's those conversations and those observations that help us know a whole person.
0: Mm. Yeah. And it's Mm -hmm. interesting. He asked in, in various contexts too. Like he said, familial, educational, ecclesiastical, vocational. Mm -hmm. I think that holds true. Both those things hold true, right. That you need to be um, observing a lot. Um, But also if it's vocational, right. Um, You know, I have people who report to me and, we both all, all of us do it within Cersei, and i report people within Cersei. but if my only interactions with them are about the job that's a limited scope right if i don't just chat them up when it's get, getting the coffee in the office and having lunch and whatever and get to know them and and kind of figure, see you know who they are mm-hmm. um and same with my kids right if i'm only interacting with my kids when i'm giving them direct instruction or correcting them or something <laughs> you know not a great relationship with my kids um and so i think that holds true worked for me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> never talked to my kids um yeah yeah but even Love i, I mean i i think even of, of the the clergy in my own church like i i the long, the more I just talk to them, hanging around after church or at you know the barbecue at someone's house or whatever, the more comfortable I feel going to them with my deeper spiritual needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the other thing I would say is that um, something that I have to guard against a lot is let, when I get that first opening, someone like, because I'm am asked a question to just dump like all the information, right, like about. The whole thing, they show the slightest interest in whatever it is—the thing we're studying in class. To just then do what you're exactly what you're talking about, Matt, with these other guys that that are going around Gorgias and others, and they're just loviating all the information they have and want you and think you should have too. It, to on here to dump everything I've ever learned about Plato, right, uh, from other dialogues and conversations that don't really that aren't helpful. If you haven't read those, <laughs> it would be a bad idea. Um, and I think that's, uh, mm-hmm. that's important too. I think to take that time to not only watch them and observe, but then give a little and see how they respond and observe that to that. That's the next level of observation too, right? When, when, when someone does come to you or a student does open up in the classroom um, to, mm-hmm. to not pour so much on it that you douse it, you know, you can douse with water. You can probably also douse it with enough gasoline that it just goes out really fast before before anything lights. So put so much gas on there and put it out. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, well, Matt, did you, you said you had a question you wanted us to think about.
2: Well, yeah, um, I was just wondering if you've read enough dialogues now to identify your because this is this is the question that they always ask on the. Shakespeare podcast. Tim, Tim always asks, "What is your Mount Rushmore mm. for Shakespeare?" So I'm wondering if you guys have read enough dialogues now that you have a Mount Rushmore for Plato. What
0: your top Plato four
2: dialogues?
0: Top four. I've read just enough to have four. Now.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think I got five. <laughs> um. Hmm. That's good.
1: And I know, like, I've largely read them with you, Matt, in some capacity. You know, we overlapped the apprenticeship for a year. And then I did your Plato, your Republic um, atrium. And now I'm in your Shorter Dialogue atrium as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I, I read some on my own, but yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at the list.
0: Uh, it's hard. It's hard for me not to put... To not put uh, the Mino in there, um, but that might just be because it was my first dialogue to really read and and discuss and maybe it just holds a spot in my heart. But I do think that what it talks about is really uh, well, what it starts to talk about and then what it ends up talking about. But, you know, can virtue be taught and then what is virtue are, are something that we just can't ever stop wrestling with. Certainly, certainly what is virtue and then. Man, I hope it can be taught or at least learned. <laughs> um, so that one, I think, would definitely uh, end up on mine.
1: I don't think I want to say this, Matt.
2: <laughs> you don't want to pick?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, because I, well, I, I haven't read them all. I haven't, and yet from what I've read, what well,
2: honestly, that just makes it harder because I have read them all, and I still don't know. How to read them. <laughs>
1: To have more to choose from. So
2: you might have an advantage here.
1: Okay. Well, I I think I've had a very special experience with Alcibiades, in that um, I read it aloud with a 16-year-old who completely engaged. And he knew nothing of of Socrates or dialogues or anything, right? But whenever Mm Socrates asked a question, he would answer me. And then we would keep going through the dialogue. And um, he wrote his own joke to go with it right um and so and i have found since i've read it which again it's not that long and so that's where i'm hesitant to want to even say this because it's not like i've sat with it very long but i keep referencing things to it um and so i'm 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 I'm, it it has continued to sit with me and i can continue to acknowledge it and connect it to things to where my friends have said so how much have you read and why do you keep talking about plato (laughs) Um, Somebody
2: just posted about that on uh on the Close Reads group on Facebook. Yeah,
1: about yeah. how a student
2: asked them a question and they started talking about Gorgias or something. And uh
0: Yeah, she's a student at Baylor student and she's in your and she's in your group. Sarah. And yeah, someone yeah. else yeah. knew enough they started talking like, what? Where are you what yeah. class are you learning this in?
1: Yeah. Um and so yeah, I think that. Um there's some a few lines in here you know every human being needs self-cultivation right that's after the metanoia moment to to realize, okay, and then what is that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know that we want a man who's able to rule his body, okay um and one who a command the command that we should know ourselves means that we should know our souls right so and knowing that. Mm-hmm. If an eye is to see itself, it must look at an eye. And if the soul is to know itself, it must look at a soul. And so this supports the need for close, uh, accountable friendship. Where you're speaking truth into one another's lives, even when it's difficult.
2: Oh, you want to read um, Lysis next? I do.
1: <laughs> I thought I wanted to read the yeah, credit phone. No, why? Because you just told We're us. this
2: guy trashed. Trash Socrates for four pages. Yeah. Lysis <laughs> uh, is only about 30 pages long. Okay. And it's it's about friendship. What is friendship?
1: Oh, yeah. Okay.
2: Brandon?
0: Um, Gorgias, Mino, Phaedrus. I'll give you uh, this one. Uh, You know, I, I want to go back and read it again. But when we were doing those readings in the office a couple of years ago, I um, that we were hosting at the office, I guess, for the local community.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Reading um, apology and the credo in particular out of out of the trial and death of Socrates um, mm-hmm. was pretty powerful to like to hear him give his defense and then and then accept accept the the judgment and not try and run from it. Um, I think it they take you right to the heart of who Socrates. was was um at least in Plato's eyes um and I -hmm. think uh I don't know I I I really enjoyed that experience um and um yeah yeah I think those two so those two with Mino and then I'm looking forward to rereading um Phaedrus because I I really I liked that whole I I like the um the uh, depiction of the of the soul and mm-hmm. uh, being, you know, and, and the two horses and the chariot and um, mm-hmm. there's so much to wrestle there with as far as when it comes to actually governing yourself. That I think um, as much as I got out of it the first time, I know there's a lot more there for me to mine and and just kind of sit with. So those are probably the ones for me right now, and not having read more of them, but so Mino... Apology, Credo, and and Phaedrus.
1: That's not one. Oh, but you're doing your top four. You're yeah, getting that
0: yeah, okay. Yeah, top four. Mount yeah, Rushmore. Mount mm-hmm. Rushmore.
2: Yeah.
1: Mm.
2: Um, well, mine would change probably based on the audience that I was doing it with, right? But if you're talking about the four that I would read probably over and over again. Wow. Would be Alcibiades one, um, Greater Hippias, mm. the Symposium and probably phaedrus
0: but um
2: also be the that
0: that that recent the recency thing is 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 real because i was like pondering alcibiades too actually because i was like whoa that was like a lot packed into a few pages so um yeah well we only had four questions and all from one person but thankfully uh Joshua gave us some meaty ones to to uh, to ponder there. So we went we went a lot longer than I thought four questions were going to take us. So that's great. Well, thank you for those of you who've been reading along and joined us for the Q&A. Hopefully this was helpful. We're hoping that that this podcast continues to make these texts. Well, they are accessible. Helps you to see how they're accessible and and uh, and enjoy them. Um, We will jump in next week to Sophocles one. Uh, we'll do one play each episode. So next week will be um, Oedipus Tyrannus. Uh, you can read it in English, though, if you want, um, instead of Latin or instead of Greek. Um, you can read Latin if you really want to, I guess. That's a whole other thing, but it'll be Oedipus Rex and Matt won't like that. So um, <laughs> so we'll start with that next week and, um, and uh, jump right into that conversation. And then we'll do those through... Uh, well, we'll take a little break at Christmas, but for the next couple of weeks and then have a QA and a early, early December, uh, early January on those. So, again, for Matt and Andrea, thanks for joining us on Overdue Classics and we will
1: see you next week.